it's almost over. <laughs> it's never over, actually. <laughs> the practice. Actually, the extinguishment of suffering, awakening, or somewhat the problematic word of enlightenment, the image that's given in the traditional scriptures is the far shore. And so I was thinking about that in terms of opening this talk on equanimity because if that's the far shore, what's the ocean? What's, um, uh, what, is, what is it that is traversed? And um, in one of my meetings, um, the term ups and downs, twists and turns, and really it's the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows that we navigate. That's what we swim through. Um, and, um, you know, it's going back and forth between the joys and the sorrows that inevitably come up not necessarily to our planning or our liking, and sometimes they come up, you know, all so close to each other, unpredictably. It's this back and forth between the joys and the sorrows. And really, we can also learn from the Buddha's life that he also was buffeted between the jo joys and the sorrows of this life, that he, his life also was um, this vibration between extremes. You know, for the first um, decades of his life, he was raised as a prince with every single need met in, in the greatest of luxury. He was protected, he was cared for, he was... Um, uh, there were three palaces that he lived in in each of the seasons. Um, he had every uh, um, sensual desire uh, fulfilled. And then he also went, uh, he went forth. And he lived six years in extreme asceticism, in... in um, uh, there was a point in which he was existing on one rice grain a day. And he became so emaciated and, you know, it was said that some of the, the Buddha statues uh, are of this archetypal time in his life and, and his, the, the abdomen actually touches his backbone in the statues. And each time we practice, each time we sit, we actually follow the Buddha's footsteps and his journey underneath the Bodhi tree, where he realized that these extremes are not necessarily the path to happiness. And he sat underneath that Bodhi tree just like each of you are doing, exploring what is it really that's going to lead to freedom. Whether we have an explicit practice of equanimity itself, equanimity is practicing us. 
It is the nature of this retreat, it is the nature of the container of this retreat to stretch and hold all of your experiences. The invitation is to use the container, the practices, the invitations and the talks and the suggestions and the meditations in order to internalize this container for yourself so that you can bring it into your lives as you live your life. So one image of equanimity is is like riding the waves of that ocean. In the immensity of our experience, in the immensity of that ocean, in the immensity of all the joys and the sorrows that come up, the joys and the sorrows can be those waves, those highs and those lows. And the ocean is so much more than the waves. You are so much more than the joys and the sorrows that you experience. There are times in which there are no waves at all. Sometimes the waves are really violent. Can we surf the waves? Can we, can we float and surf any condition that comes up? You know, sometimes it's the resentment or anger. Sometimes it's the, the wanting, the craving that comes up. Sometimes it's the doubt. These are the hindrances that, that Gina and all of us have been referring to. These are some of the waves that come. So equanimity, or upeka, the fourth building over there, if you want the spelling of the word, means to look at and perceive patiently. And one definition is the evenness of mind. The evenness of mind. So it's a kind of a balance. And this emerges from the teachings of the Brahma Viharas that we've been going through in this retreat. So from this, this core energy of your heart called kindness, called metta, it is inherent in each being's existence. From this core energy of kindness, as you turn it towards the sorrows, compassion automatically arises. As you turn it towards the life force and life energy that all of us share, this joy that is beyond an individual joy arises. And in each moment, we go back and forth between, between the highs and the lows, and eventually we come to this place of equanimity. This is how all the Brahma Viharas are interconnected and related to each other. They are not separate. And this balance, just like, you know, the physical aspect of balancing, you know, you ride a bicycle. What happens when you first get on a bicycle? You fall down. And you get up. That's actually part of learning how to balance. You fall down, you get up. You fall down, you get up. 
sooner or later you kind of wobble and pretty soon you actually ride the bike. But the balance is not one static point. You're always falling, but you're just self-correcting quicker. You're constantly in motion. You're just catching yourself quicker. This is balance. What are you catching? You're catching yourself and, and realizing what is going to lead to less suffering in your life quicker. Jesse Jackson said, you may not be responsible for getting knocked down, but you are certainly responsible for getting back up. This is balance. Balancing the entire range of your experience, the evenness of mind. So someone wrote this um, passage to me, um, email to me after the um, Oklahoma City bombings um, earlier this decade, past decade. And she, she said, I was in Oklahoma City not long after the federal building bombing. We were driven around the bombed out building by one of the rescue workers. She told us many heartbreaking stories, some sad, some good. She also mentioned that the dogs they used for sniffing out survivors and the dead had to be taken off site every two hours of work and played with their handlers. Otherwise, the dogs would become extremely depressed. Playtime was a way to regain their balance and just be dogs again. Every being needs balance. It is, a, it, is a, it is a skill and it is a support in our life. That evenness of mind with an attitude of non-reactivity, of being just there, meeting the moment for what it is. And this non-reactivity is not non-activity or as Michelle said in her Dharma talk, non-reactivity is activity. It is a positive force. So the phrases of equanimity are slightly different than the phrases of the other Brahma-viharas. So some of the phrases are, or can be, and you're free to change them. I care deeply and cannot control the outcome of the circumstances. Life is but a play of joy and sorrow. May we remain undisturbed by life's rise and fall. Things have come to be just as they are. This moment has come to be just as it is in this moment. That's, that, that in this moment is very critical to not forget. Because that, that acceptance of the moment means that this moment can't be changed. 
doesn't mean that future moments can't be changed. It means that this moment, even if it's really painful, all the conditions converging on this moment have created it. You can't turn back time. But you can gain the insight as to possibly create different conditions for freedom. So the near opposite of equanimity, each of the Brahmaviharas have the near opposite and the far opposite, is something I would say is very familiar, and that is indifference, apathy. And the reason that I say it's unfamiliar is because I'm going to venture to say that every person in this room has been indifferent at one point in time or another because there is one word in our culture that everybody uses, including my 94-year-old mother, that is emblematic of indifference. What is it? Whatever. What? My 94-year-old mother uses it. So, it means that you don't care, right? So I looked it up in... You know, there, the internet has everything. It has this, you know, like hip urban dictionary. So I looked up, whatever. And these are some of the quotes. <laughs> Nothing you say or do could make, me, make you matter to me. <laughs> I am actually upset you are stealing my air. It's a powerful experience, indifference. You think that it doesn't matter, but it does because you're detached. You are detached from what is happening. And there's a distinction between detachment and non-attachment. Because in non-attachment, you're fully engaged. Equanimous action emerges from the wisdom and the kindness of non-reactivity. But equanimity is not neutrality and it's not passivity. We can have strong opinions and beliefs and passions but not be driven by them. Non-reactivity of equanimity is really distinct. The source of non-reactivity is wisdom and compassion, which means mindfulness. The source of indifference is usually aversion. Whatever. The source of neutrality can be ignorance and delusion. Not having enough information So the far opposite of equanimity is the reactivity to extremes. 
So what is this non-reactivity? What balances this reactivity, that is the unconscious pushing away of things we don't like and wanting more of that what we do like? This is where the practice of Vedana is so important. It is, it is a, such a profound practice. I can't emphasize it even more. Because we want more of the pleasant and we don't want the unpleasant, just noticing it and not following the impulse, what did I say last time? Noticing the impulse and not needing to act on it. Noticing the pleasant or unpleasant and not needing to act on it. This is profound. There are these eight worldly winds that everybody in any circumstance will get. Pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, gain and loss, praise and blame. We all receive that highs and lows. You may like the way that I give Dharma talks, but I can tell you for certain there are people in the world that do not like my Dharma talks. <laughs> and that's okay. Sometimes. Yeah, I did. But you know, when it's not okay, I suffer. This can happen with any state of mind. Even unpleasant states, un unwholesome states like anger. Or even pain, because there was a question in the room uh, this morning about pain and being attracted to pain itself. Both with anger and pain, if you are very mindful in the anger, in the rage, there are pleasant sensations. There's righteousness. You know, that feels good. And what happens? we get seduced by the pleasantness because we're not mindful and we want more and the rage continues. Not necessarily because we want it, not necessarily because we think that it will lead to a better conclusion, but because we're seduced by the pleasant feelings and we haven't just noticed the pleasant so that we can have a choice. What's really going to lead to less suffering in the world or in my life? It's subtle. We can, we can have a pattern of behavior that, that may not be so healthy, let's say depression. But if that's the only thing we're familiar with, we can be seduced by the pleasant sensations of familiarity rather than risking the unfamiliarity of change. Even though we suffer on a different level. It's subtle, 
and it's profound, and it's really worthwhile your practice. The Buddha said, where there is attachment to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant, liberation is not possible. And remember that awareness of your experience is not the experience itself. Awareness of anger is not being lost in the anger. Awareness of the craving is not caught in the craving. When you're aware, you're actually expanding the landscape of your experience. On on another retreat, on the second day, one practitioner um, said to me, I discovered this whole world inside of me that I never knew. That whole world can hold all of your experience. Equanimity invites us into an intimate relationship with our experience, regardless of conditions, circumstances, or events. An awareness to perceive with patience, with acceptance, spaciousness, non-reactivity, not needing things to be anything other than the way they are in this moment. So there are a lot of discomforts that come up in retreat, if you've noticed. You know, the movement and the rustling and the doors opening and closing, they're not supposed to be doing that. There are too many many rules for you to follow, but others aren't following the rules. (laughs) Problems with the rooms and the bathrooms, your roommates, people aren't holding to the silence, they're using too many cushions. (laughs) And maybe you've heard things you don't like or don't agree with from the teachings, from the teachers. And in spite of all that, is there the possibility of freedom? Is there a calm in the eye of your storm? What are the conditions of your freedom? Are there any prerequisites Who would you be without the prerequisites of your freedom? Because, you know, there are none. Our concept of freedom is skewed by the conditioning of our external culture. Freedom is not doing or getting whatever you want, whenever you want it, wherever you want, with whom you want it. That is not freedom. That is addiction to pleasant experiences and the escaping of unpleasant experiences. As a person of color and as a gay man, in the halls of most of our meditation centers, I didn't see myself. I didn't see myself reflected. I didn't hear my story. And in my early retreats, I just wanted to change the room. I wanted the whole place to be different. 
I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out ways that the room could be different, different from the way things were. And how successful was I? (laughs) That was a lot of suffering. And I left the room sometimes. I left the retreat because I couldn't hold it. And on hindsight, I suffered even more because I couldn't hear the Dharma. What this practice has offered me over time is the ability to practice regardless of the conditions and receive the teachings no matter who is giving them, no matter what the location is, no matter what the circumstances are. There's a relaxing into the experience and there's freedom in that. Of course, I thought the cultural conditions of the room were unfair. Sometimes I still do. I wish our world were different. There's unfairness in the world. Duh. (laughs) And is that a prerequisite of your freedom? Does our freedom depend upon life being fair? Because we can wait a long time (laughs) for that. Justice is such a worthy and necessary human endeavor. And it is distinct from freedom. Freedom does not mean to be in a place where there is no problem and no struggles and no difficulty. It means to be in the midst of those things with an open heart and a clear mind. That means when we're dissatisfied, when we want the moment to be something other than it is, can we be okay with that? Can we be satisfied, so to speak, with both satisfaction and dissatisfaction? Can we ride the waves of the ocean Noticing the preferences. It's not about not having preferences. Noticing the preferences, but not being controlled by them, not needing to act on them until there's insight. Remember the practice of the itch. This is the template. This is why we give the instructions and they, they, they broaden to, to include every aspect of your life, especially as we walk into the world. Equanimity is not waiting for the end of the conditions causing pain. It is the possibility of freedom in this moment. So that you can do the hard work that needs to be done in this world with greater ease. Equanimity does not ask us to be passive. Sayada Ubhandita, who is one of the Burmese meditation masters and the teacher of many of our teachers, has this beautiful way of languaging it. Practicing mindfulness means building peaceful little worlds within each of those who practice. Without peace in our little worlds, 
crying out for peace in the big world with clenched fists and raised arms is something to think about. Mindfulness and equanimity allows us to change the suffering of the world in a way that doesn't create more suffering. And it's worth invoking again, because I know that Gina invoked it in her forgiveness talk, but the words of Dr. King is so emblematic of love and equanimity. We can stand up before our most violent opponent and say, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will and we will still love you. That expansiveness of equanimity. Throw us in jail and we will still love you. But be assured, we will ride you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we will win our freedom, but we will not only win freedom for ourselves. We will so appeal to your heart and your conscience that we will win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. The grand vision and the spaciousness of that intention. As short as life is, often it takes much longer than it feels it should to do the things that the world needs done. Equanimity allows us to live through that experience. That multicultural meditation room that I craved for years ago has now come into being. A lot of efforts by a lot of people over a lot of years that still continue, but things have changed. Equanimity provides the spaciousness to do this demanding work and seed collective social change. Our collective practice is no different than our individual practice. We cannot change that which we are not aware of. That means that collective social change depends upon collective social awareness. And awareness demands that we are aware of change. These POC retreats are so precious and rare as an opportunity for spiritual practice for all of us who thirst for freedom. They are doors into the Dharma of liberation and kindness. And the invitation is not to be attached to the door. Because any attachment, even if it's subtle and to wholesome factors, leads to suffering. And I don't say this to give you bad news. I don't say this to disappoint you. And I don't say this to, to betray your trust in me. 
I hope you know how much each of us love you and love what is created in this room. I say this because your spiritual practice is so much greater than even just this retreat. Allow yourself, when you're ready, when you're ready, to explore that infinite expansiveness of your spiritual practice with the support of equanimity. Some of you are engaged in the difficult and hard work of social justice and change. When confronted with that difficulty and that hardness, do you yourself become difficult and hard as people? If that might be the tendency, then the situation has changed you rather than you being an instrument of change. The practice of equanimity allows you to become that change agent without losing the vision of who you know you are. The Buddha described a mind filled with equanimity as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, and without ill will. I hope you know, deeply know, that simply by being here this week, you have come so far in your practice of mindfulness and equanimity. Even though you may not feel all that aware or equanimous right now, you are, because you have allowed this container, your experience, to hold all of it. Because, you know, if you hadn't held it, you'd be out of here. You would have left. And none of you left. That means you are practicing this piece of equanimity. Holding the entire range of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows in this ocean of your experience. I want to end with um, the life story of um, a woman who has been given the title Lady of No Fear. And many of you know her as Ansang Suchi of Burma. And many of you know that she was released from, from house incarceration in November. But she was incarcerated for 15 out of 21 years. And her recent seven-year house arrest um, still has not deterred her from being part of the democratic movement in her um, tightly controlled uh, country. And she was really kind of a regular person. Um, she was a mother of two. She was an academic researcher in England with her husband. And in 1988, she went home to take care of her aging and ill mother and got involved in the, in the, in the 
collective movement because she was a Buddhist and because she had um, studied Gandhi. And part of her suffering was not being able to see her husband before he died of prostate cancer. Between 1989 and 1999, they only saw each other five times. And the last time was in 1995. She didn't see her sons after the ages of 11 and 15. Because she knew, even though she had permission to leave, she couldn't return. So she decided to stay. So she was released from house arrest. And um, this is a passage um, um, from an article about her. Uh, the regime has ignored her repeated efforts for national reconciliation dialogue. Since releasing her, the junta has dealt with Suchia by acting as if she doesn't exist, expunging any mention of her name from the local press and hoping that despite her busy calendar and huge crowds that gather wherever she goes, that she will somehow dwindle into irrelevance. She says, I wish I could have tea with them every Saturday. Just a friendly tea. And then so the interviewer asks, and if they turn down a nice cup of tea? We could always try coffee, she says. <laughs> After 15 years of incarceration, that is equanimity. And you know, in our culture perhaps, another word for equanimity is grace. For now she is out, but there's little doubt if the hunter sees in her any realistic challenge to its authority, she will be sent to jail again on whatever spurious charge the military can concoct. She says, I want to do as much as I can while I'm free, but I don't want to tire myself out. Equanimity. And we never know how much time we have. It is possible to hold the grandest vision of the world and work towards it without losing the vision of who we see ourselves to be in this life. There is a direct connection again between what you're doing here and how you live in the world. Anna Julia Cooper, who was born into slavery but became one of the foremost educators of the last century, said the cause of freedom is not the cause of a race or a sect, a party or a class. It is the cause of humankind. It is the very birthright of humanity. This is the great journey of your birthright. This is the human journey through suffering into freedom. This is the expansiveness of your equanimity practice. Thank you for your kind attention.
So let's 